0: I'm Mark Peterson, and this is Before, During, and After, a podcast from FEMA. This summer has been hot. We're seeing some of the hottest days on record, and the extreme heat is without borders, impacting not just the United States, but countries across the globe. So welcome back to episode number three of our four-part series in support of FEMA's Summer Ready Campaign where we're exploring the effects of extreme heat and how collaboration among local, state, tribal, and federal partners can lead to more educated communities. Heat in extreme heat continues to impact communities across the globe. We've seen more frequent events and cascading disasters over the past few years. Staying ahead of them requires we review our response plans regularly and adjust as needed, but also think in both short and long terms to ensure a whole community approach to keeping people safe. With that in mind, and as individuals are experiencing more frequent and extreme heat waves, which we've seen throughout this summer, on this episode, we will discuss one state's innovative effort to keep residents safe from extreme temperatures. California recently launched one of the nation's first statewide multi-ethnic awareness and education campaigns designed to keep Californians safe during extreme heat. So in this episode, we'll learn all about what it means to be heat ready in California. Okay, so on this episode and the third episode of our summer ready campaign podcast focused on extreme heat, uh, we have Maricela Rodriguez, who is the senior advisor for civic engagement and strategic partnerships at the office of California's governor, Gavin Newsom. So uh, Maricela, thank you so much for joining me today.
1: Thank you for having me. Appreciate it.
0: So um, just to introduce uh, the audience, um, tell us a little bit about yourself and the path that you took to uh, launch or help launch California's uh, most recent campaign, Heat Ready California.
1: Sure. Well, in in my role, I've had an opportunity to work on some of the state's highest priority public engagement campaigns. And it really started with our census work, uh, the 2020 census um, public education and outreach campaign, we really built a, a great model there for engaging community, especially those who are hard to count, hard to reach. Uh, and as that work was uh, ending, it really was something that we leveraged for our pandemic response. And, you know, now is really a great model and a great infrastructure for us to now work on extreme heat. Uh, which I know we're going to talk about today, Uh, but it really was, you know, that trajectory that put me in this place to really be able to deliver on a campaign. that includes both a ground game and an air game, really focused on vulnerable populations, giving us the background and the information that we need to really figure out who are most vulnerable, how do we meet them, What's the information we need to get out to them in order to keep them safe? Uh, So really have been working on um, those high priority public education campaigns and thinking through them from an equity standpoint and really focused on folks that are hard to reach, underserved, and how we can better serve them and deliver reliable, actionable information uh, that can make their lives better, keep them safer. um, all of that good stuff.
0: I'm I'm really excited to talk about this campaign because, you know, one of the things that really strikes me about California, every time I think of the state, I, you know, even just kind of looking at it from an emergency management lens, there's the, the state is so vast. I mean, you have the coast, so, uh, and then you have just vast rivers, you have agricultural lands, you've got deserts and mountains. So, it's a, I mean, these campaigns are really important because I think there's extreme heat uh, that not everybody thinks about because uh, in certain regions of California, I'm guessing. Is that right?
1: Right. And that's, you know, the diversity and the complexity is something that's really good to highlight. So I'm glad you brought it up. California is one of the most diverse in the state um both from like a demographic standpoint as well as how extreme heat impacts us across every region and so we have to take those things into account so uh, you know just as we think about these public engagement campaigns we have to figure out how to best meet people where they are in the language that they speak having it be culturally responsive so that we're reaching folks with information that's going to resonate and that they're going to trust At the same time, we also have to consider how does the Central Valley differ from the Bay Area, from Southern California? Um, Where do we need to scale and ramp up? Because the state uh, is going to experience extreme heat in different ways. And then we also have the diversity in those who are considered vulnerable. We have workers, we have We have young people, we have, uh, pregnant women, you know, we, there's a lot of things that we need to take into account as we like, think about how are we going to keep folks safer?
0: Absolutely. So, you know, we've been working through this, uh, Uh, summer ready campaign here at FEMA. And it's a really a focus on the fact that extreme heat is the deadliest weather related hazard that we face. And it's one that we don't often consider from day to day. So for example, you know, when it's cold outside, we bundle up and we take action to prevent our bodies from freezing or experiencing things like frostbite. Um, But from from your experience, why don't we consider heat as a similar threat, one that we need to prepare for?
1: That's a really great point. Uh, You know, when we look at uh, extreme weather, we, we look at wildfires, we look at flooding, and they're all very visible. And we know we can see it. It's very tangible. With extreme heat, it's not so much. It's very, it's almost invisible, but it's among the most deadly. And, you know, it's among the most dangerous when it comes to public health. And so it's really important for us to, make it a priority and to really raise the alarm with folks to say this is important and why it's important with extreme heat what's different is that our climate is getting hotter it's getting drier uh extreme heat is lingering longer and we may not have that cool down that we tend to count on at night and so when we experience two or more days with extreme heat higher temperatures than usual And we don't see that cool down that has a direct impact in our bodies. And we don't we can't see that as much. It's not as visible as floods that, you know, that are very visual or that wildfire coming down the hill. It's something that we need to prepare for and understand that uh, this extreme weather is becoming uh, more dangerous. And we need to prepare for it. And we need to also understand like who's more vulnerable and how they can stay safer. So really important point to highlight is it's not as visible, but it's very dangerous. And we need to sound the alarm on it because it's it'll be easy for folks to feel like, you know, we've been through the hot summer in the past, but because our weather is getting hotter and it's lingering and we may see more of these heat waves. In our future, we got to understand how it impacts our body and how we can be prepared. And what do we do if we start feeling the impact of extreme heat on our bodies?
0: So, uh, you know, just tugging on that that thread a little bit about the sort of that difference between that cold weather, our communities and and our individuals and our citizens um, and our residents for cold weather they they prepare all the time. You know communities are getting uh the snow plows ready and their salt uh, trucks ready and and individuals are are thinking about their winter wear and they're 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 looking at the ways that maybe they're protecting their kids. What does preparing for extreme heat look like to you at the community level and maybe at the individual level
1: sure so you know, I think one of the most important things that happens at the local level, and I think just generally, one, we all have to recognize extreme heat is, is dangerous and uh, we need to work together to keep each other safer. And so first, that prioritization is like key. So in the local community, cooling centers, you know, places where people can go to stay cool that's super critical. So figuring out how those can come together and then understanding the local needs is really important. So if we're going to need transportation from, you know, from homes to cooling centers, or, you know, I think that landscape is super critical in being prepared and offering folks those resources that can help keep them safer. From an individual standpoint, it's really understanding first, you know, am I, Uh, considered higher risk. And if so, like having that awareness up front is going to be really important. As we see temperatures starting to ramp up, we need to look at ways that we can stay cooler, staying indoors more, especially in the peak of heat. Wearing loose, light clothing, staying hydrated, drinking more water than you usually do. Like, don't wait until you're thirsty to drink water. You know, knowing where your cooling centers are. um, If you don't have access to air conditioning, like finding ways to either stay cool at home um, and finding ways how you can make your home cooler, like closing the curtains, having a fan on, staying hydrated or finding an alternative a location like a cooling center or spending time in a different place that um, offers air conditioning like a library, for instance. So knowing your risk factors, knowing what your re- local resources are is going to be super key for when we start seeing those temperatures rise.
0: Absolutely. And, um, and, and sadly, hundreds of people have, have died from extreme heat um, in California alone over the past several years. But the state of California, under Governor Gavin Newsom, uh, launched recently the Extreme Heat Action Plan, which pumps, from what I understand, more than $400 million into tackling this problem. And so tell me, how did this plan come about? Uh, w- w- was there a final straw that, so to speak, that uh, made the administration make responding to extreme heat a priority? Um, what was sort of the impetus for it?
1: Sure, And this is, you know, the extreme heat action plan is something that rolled out, was launched last year, but it really was an update to a previous plan. So it's something that California has had on its radar for some time. And really what the action plan calls out is is the importance of prioritizing extreme heat and both, you know, from a short term perspective, as well as building resilience for the future. And it's acknowledging that it's an all of government approach. This is a public health issue. This is a climate issue. This is this is crosses multiple agencies and having a plan that allows us to look at both short-term and long-term measures that the state should take to keep California safer and build resilience was really key for us. And so, you know, again, it's really just acknowledging the fact that our climate is getting hotter, it's getting drier, and we need to do more to prepare and to do everything that we can to keep people safer. That's really what uh, led the path for this action plan And the great thing about this action plan was that, you know, there's a lot of public input, like listening sessions, you know, workshops, you know, consultations with California Native American tribes. There's a lot of work to really inform this plan. And again, a lot of engagement uh, across our agencies to ensure that this was going to be like a holistic plan, an all-of-government approach, because it really takes that to build uh, the kind of plan and preparedness that we need, especially as we go into the future. So there's a couple of components um, that we can talk about, but you know, just really wanted to to stress, um, you know, this was really about acknowledging that our climate is getting hotter, it's getting drier. Extreme heat impacts people. You know, as you know, as we've talked about before, you know, it's it's among the most dangerous. Um, and so we, there's a lot of work that we need to do in, in making sure that people stay safer and this helps us prioritize and pull in everybody. Like I said, an all of government approach to tackle this now and into the future.
0: And, and what dramatic timing, I mean, what a significant summer, uh, just in terms of the temperatures that we've seen across the Southwest, um, and then in the Southeast and then through the you know, the central United States, it's been really everywhere that we've seen those impacts. Um, So uh, with regard to the plan, you know, what are some of the specific goals that you've outlined?
1: Sure. So there's a, there's a couple of tracks or pillars associated with this plan. You know, as I I mentioned, it was really informed and a coordinated effort in terms of what really went into this plan. But one is, uh, is building public awareness and notification, you know, that just recognizing that it's important to increase California's awareness of heat threats and how to stay safe, provide emergency alerts and early warning to help people prepare and make available data and modeling on threats and impacts. You know, this all really helps experts really understand the severity, the impact, and how we can, um, be informed to, to do more in the future. Um, Another key pillar is uh, to strengthen community services and response. This is really about expanding cooling centers and resilience hubs, uh, protecting outdoor workers and support for local and regional response plans. Um, Our third pillar of this is increasing resilience of our built environment. This is about retrofitting our buildings to stay cool with air conditioning. Um, and cool roofs, uh, broaden use of cool pavement and other technologies, Um, and finally um, utilizing nature-based solutions. So how do we expand trees and shade in vulnerable communities, uh, green schoolyards and public spaces, create more areas of outdoor refuge, and across the board really looking at, you know, understanding how we can serve those who are impacted most, um, and how we can serve our vulnerable communities. So across these four pillars, we're really looking at how we can serve, uh, lower income communities. Those, um, communities that I said are disproportionately impacted, keeping them in mind as we think about these key pillars of the
0: work. It's really interesting to hear you talk about those pillars because, um, my, where I work for FEMA, I work in uh, the Chicago office, which serves FEMA Region 5, which is around the Great Lakes. And w- this summer we've had conversations with local officials around extreme heat and very similar um, sort of focus areas come up even in this area. So it's it's highly relevant, um, you know, the work that California is doing to the other parts of the country. And I think what's always relevant across um, all of our our communities is is the public awareness. And the work that you do are doing in California is, is, uh, very interesting. It sounds like the state has dedicated, uh, around $20 million to build public awareness and education, um, efforts so that people really understand these risks that are associated with extreme heat. Um, so talk about the outreach efforts that, uh, your teams have been doing and that are really tied to this overall effort. Sure.
1: And, you know, this, this. A heat ready CA campaign is, a, a, an, again, a really tangible component of our extreme heat action plan. That was something that was really called for in the input that was that contributed towards the plan. And so this was a really fantastic deliverable uh, that you know we recently launched a couple of weeks ago. Um, the 20 million is to help us fund a campaign over the next two years and really focused on our most vulnerable populations that are going to experience extreme heat in their communities. And, you know, as I mentioned earlier, the work that I've been doing uh, over the last couple of years has been helping to create this infrastructure that allows us to do a really integrated uh, public engagement campaign. Again, that drives work from a data-driven standpoint, equity-centered, And helps us connect with with people where they are um, in the language they speak. And so, part of what happened in our last uh, year's budget was the establishment of the Office of Community Partnerships and Strategic Communications. And it really gave a home to the model that we've created over the last couple of years, where we have our community outreach work with trusted messengers, our communications work that is in language. And, you know, having a data driven component to this work so that we can make smart choices about how we invest, where we invest and how we apply a rapid response effort to whatever campaign is that we're driving. So in this instance, you know, we have now over 120 community based organizations that are covering all of our counties across California, California. And they're working uh, across our counties in over 30 different languages. And they're doing everything from community activations to canvassing and phone banking. These are, in many cases, uh, CBOs that we've been working with for many years. So that, you know, we know that they are effective in doing this work locally. And we have communications work that ha- includes. Targeted paid media across radio and social and digital efforts. You know, again, it's multilingual. It has, you know, engagement with ethnic media that can deliver information that will resonate with communities and with the best tactics that work for folks locally. And a very robust earned media effort that includes, again, working with ethnic media, general media. But also engaging meteorologists, you know, as we see each heat wave coming, we want to make sure that we're engaging trusted messengers and and putting information out there to help folks prepare and then, you know, trying to engage other folks that can help us deliver this message that are trusted and that includes meteorologists and includes a lot of folks in the public health space Um, so our earned media efforts are very robust and are part of our rapid response and so really excited to see all of these different components um, coming together and as we see temperatures rise we're able to pull different tools from our toolbox to ramp up efforts or to localize information and again, this trusted messenger network is super key to the work that we're doing. Um, and part of what we want to prioritize is part of this office and what we've been doing is coordinating across state governments. So this campaign is recently you know, new, but we have other work that happens across the state where we want to make sure that there's also coordination. So the Listos California program out of our OES office, the 99 Calor campaign, out of our LWDA team. So just really making sure that we're coordinating our efforts and sharing information is going to be key to making sure that our impact is felt effectively at the local level, as well as at the statewide level.
0: Oh, absolutely. And, um, you know, as a communications professional, uh, all that sounds extremely exciting. I'm just, uh, fascinated by the resources that you have to dedicate, um, towards this, this effort. Um, can we, let's talk a little bit about, um, the underserved populations that you brought up, particularly those that have limited financial resources. They're often the most impacted by extreme heat deaths, illnesses. Uh, we find many of them in these populations. And so, um, uh, many times it's because they can't afford air conditionings in their homes or they don't have access to transportation to get to a local cooling center when it's really hot. So, what steps can community leaders take uh, to one, identify individuals who may be in these situations and two, make sure that their approach to responding to extreme heat is equitable across the board?
1: That's a great question. You know, really just the first thing is acknowledging that extreme heat is should be a priority. And you know, having your preparedness follow that is just really key. So You know, one of the things that I know we've done on the campaign side has been how do we, you know, really compile a list of those kinds of resources for lower income communities that we know are going to be necessary? It's, you know, it's one thing to say to stay cool, but then attach that to resources is really critical. So we've compiled. Some of those resources that we share through our CBO network, as well as on the website, and then we share it through our trusted messengers, um, through our earned media efforts. So at the local level, really understanding what those unique needs are, uh, you know, just as we talked about before, extreme heat impacts every region differently and there are unique issues on the ground you know every region is very different like the needs in the central valley are going to be very different than a different region and so really understanding what the those unique factors are and understanding that landscape is going to be really critical to assessing you know what are going to be the most important resources that can be pulled together at the local level and so As you've mentioned, in many cases, you know, staying cool is key. And so for folks that maybe don't have air conditioning, what are some of those options available to them? Whether it's about, you know, trying to keep their home cool through alternative measures or going somewhere like a cooling center and having that information readily available. So and and in addition to that, some folks may You know, make the decision and say, like, I need to go to a cooling center, but may lack transportation services. So, really trying to compile those resources at the local level and making it accessible to people is going to be really key. Like, meeting people where they are is going to be our best tactic to keeping people safer. So, in terms of also understanding that uniqueness at the local level, is, you know, understanding like, you know, who are the folks that are vulnerable how can I meet them where they are and what kind of resources are they going to need to stay safer? So in many cases, it is going to be about not just raising awareness about cooling centers, but also what are the resources attached to maybe helping folks like transportation services get there? Uh, it's been really great to see in, in many cases, partnerships where, you know, with like 211, you know, or other partnerships at the local level where they help really get this information out there. Again, we need to do this at the state level as well as at the local level because, again, you know, a lot of this work is driven locally. So really understanding that local landscape about what the needs are as well as what the local resources are is going to be really key to, like, figuring out how do we connect people to resources and what's the best way to do that. It's going to make the difference between someone... One, understanding what they should do, um, and then accessing any kind of help to kind of get them to access those resources is going to be really key.
0: You don't have to look very far on the news, uh, in the papers. It seems like everywhere this summer, we have heard about the extreme temperatures, um, and not just in California, but around the country and, and frankly, around the globe. And, you know, science is continuing to tell us that the intensity of these heat waves is going to get worse. Um, and it poses a particular problem for virtually every population, aging populations, infants, children, pregnant people, um, the homeless, uh, and, and people with chronic illnesses. So within this this podcast, this uh, platform, um, we really try to focus on uh, what emergency managers can do. So Maricela, what can emergency managers and local leaders do to mitigate these risks for all of these vulnerable populations and and thereby support our communities?
1: First, I just want to say it's a huge appreciation out there for folks at the local level. You know, you're really on the front lines, emergency managers, local leaders. We know that a lot of this work is very much a local issue, a local effort. And it's, you know, the folks on the ground really are on the front lines of every disaster. We've, we've, seen a lot of extremes especially recently so just a huge appreciation for the folks that are on the front lines and taking care of a community day in and day out and so you know really what we can do as we've been talking about is just one just acknowledging that extreme heat is a priority and how we can prepare in the short term and in the long term at the state level we really see our role Uh, A big part of our role is to figure out how we support those local efforts, uh, local communities, local leaders, uh, local emergency managers, whether it's great providing like toolkits or resources and really figuring out the best way to do coordination. So I think at the local level, it's really understanding and acknowledging that extreme heat is a priority and then understanding those local priorities of, you know, how extreme heat impacts people at the local level, uh, the uniqueness of each community, and connecting folks uh, to those local resources. Uh, And again, just really, I think partnerships are going to be super important, you know, meeting people where they are, again is going to be, it's going to make all the difference in whether we can keep people safer or not. So in many cases, establishing local coordination, local partnerships, it's gonna make all the difference. And so ensuring that we have a good way of connecting with people locally about what they need to do and, and where their resources are and connecting with them in a way that's going to resonate with local trusted messengers is going to make a big difference. And so. Again, I think it's really just one acknowledging that, you know, that extreme heat is our new reality and there's a lot that we need to do to prepare as well as when we actually are in the thick of it, like what can we do from an activation standpoint and a response standpoint. And again, just meeting people where they are in the languages they speak is going to make the difference uh, in keeping people safer.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of Before, During, and After, a podcast from FEMA. If you'd like to learn more about this episode or other topics, or have ideas for future episodes, visit us at fema.gov slash podcast.